My name is Andre Lacroix, and my leadership lesson is that putting your people at the heart of your strategic thinking and day-to-day action is the best way to drive sustainable growth and value for all your stakeholders. Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. And today we have the first appearance in our podcast for our brilliant new senior writer, Antonia Garrett-Peel. Welcome, Antonia. Thanks, Kate. It's great to be on here. This week, we've interviewed Andre Lacroix, who's the chief executive of the FTSE 100 quality assurance company, Intertech Group. He spoke with Ailish about the productivity slump that we're experiencing here in the UK and how business leaders can get the most out of their people. In his opinion, most of the productivity issue can be boiled down to bad management. He argues that leaders tend to focus too much on short-term fixes and don't invest enough in long-term solutions. One interesting point he made was that when leaders are assessing the different departments within a business, a lot of the time they'll focus on the failing parts. But he argued that they actually need to give the same attention and encouragement to the prosperous parts of the business to continue growth. He said fostering this culture of positivity was crucial because there is a direct link between employees feeling encouraged and increased productivity. He also said that leaders need to manage their own time a lot better, which I'm sure will come as no surprise to most of our listeners, because companies are often overmanaged and underled. He said leaders need to focus on leading a team rather than micromanaging them. And I think that first point about only giving your attention to the negatives um, is such a common thing we all do in our general lives. Natural human psychology is that you focus on perceived threats as part of that survival instinct. But it's a good point about not letting those who are doing well sort of shrivel from a lack of attention. And then that point about time management, well, yes, we could all do with better time management, couldn't we? And it's a common trap that leaders fall into, which is micromanaging and getting caught in the weeds when they should be stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. I think it's important to remember that your job and your value as a leader is in how you lead a team, not trying to do everything yourself. And also, if you do do that, it can discourage the people who work for you if you're not giving them the space to grow either. So that interview is later on in the show. Now let's catch up with the latest leadership and business news of the past couple of weeks. And our first story is Antonia's feature about how to manage a business rivalry. And this is prompted by the will they, won't they story about Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg potentially having a cage fight. And now while a cage fight is not a common way to settle scores, I'm sure many of our listeners will recognize the desire to trump a competitor. So Antonia, you spoke to a range of experts on the topic, including the preeminent researcher on the topic. What did you find out? So the first thing is that it's important to distinguish between a rivalry and straightforward competition. So in a rivalry, there's sort of this added layer of motivation to outperform your opponent, which is rooted in more than what you kind of stand to gain in the current competition, but in a shared history between you and therefore sort of the psychological gains that will come your way by beating them. So I spoke to a few different researchers and they'd kind of identified a number of impacts that rivalry can have on human behavior. So on the more positive end, they found that rivalry can kind of act as motivational fuel to try harder and that can kind of drive innovation and positive business performance outcomes. A more ambivalent link is that it can increase an individual's propensity to take risks so that's by bringing on a sort of heightened play to win mindset and elevating levels of physiological stress and 
obviously a risk is just that. So it can have good outcomes or bad outcomes. So that was on the more ambivalent end. And then where rivalry sort of strays into the sort of purely negative is where it's been linked with different forms of unethical behaviour. And there's sort of many different examples of this through history. Yeah, that obsessiveness that you must beat that person is such a common thing to see, even if what you stand to gain is ultimately not worth it. And actually what you stand to lose is a lot worse, but you can you can see that play out in so many scenarios. It's kind of an interesting one to observe. Yeah, I mean, that's a point that um, Randall Peterson made, say he's a professor at London Business School, and he said that rivalry can actually become a distraction from achieving your aims. So sort of just the desire to vanquish your opponent kind of trumps everything else. And you can just get too bogged down in it. And that can be sort of to the detriment of what you're trying to achieve. Mm. I know this is a bit of a random example, but certainly that Moby Dick, Captain Ahab, so I know it's like a revenge strategy. It's maybe slightly different, but that kind of obsessiveness, I must beat the whale at all costs. And even if I end up killing myself in the process, it's sort of, you know, perhaps something for leaders to watch that they don't get too um, distracted, exactly as you say, from what their their actual main task is. Interesting. And also you wrote a piece about sort of key business rivalries over the years. Do you want to talk about the best ones there? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, there's been so many and we had to sort of hone in on a few. The sort of antics that have kind of gone on throughout history, some very grisly. So for example, the rivalry between Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse, And the two businessmen were battling to assert the supremacy of different electrical transmission systems. So Edison was promoting direct current and his rival alternating current. And Edison sort of set about to discredit Westinghouse by sowing the idea that AC was dangerous. And as part of this, he staged these really brutal electrocutions of animals. And he was part of this was related to or sort of under the guise of helping to develop a more humane method of capital punishment. But it all got very grisly. And of course, in the end, alternating current did kind of emerge as the supreme one in spite of Edison's best efforts. So as sort of part of this campaign, Edison used to refer to being electrocuted as being Westinghoused. Next time I get an electric shock, I'm going to say that I've been Westinghouse. <laughs> yeah, that feels feels particularly devious, doesn't it, to link your competitor with death and capital punishment. I'm not sure the libel laws would allow for that sort of thing now, but th- there you go. <laughs> it makes it seem like they're sort of losing their sight of their role and they're so focused on cancelling each other out and losing focus on the business. And we've seen this, I think, with bringing it back to Elon Musk, when he joined Twitter, people were questioning his motives. Does he actually genuinely care about the business? Is this an ego trip for him? So there was a BBC article recently about how Mark Zuckerberg doesn't believe that Elon Musk is too serious about holding this cage fire and believes that it's actually time to move on from this idea of an actual cage fight. He put a post out on threads that he did initially offer Elon Musk a date to hold this cage fight, but Musk has sort of come up with lots of different excuses as to why he can't go or why he can't make those particular dates. Musk's response to um, that post on Meta by 
Zuckerberg saying that it was time to move on and everyone knew Musk isn't serious was kind of typical of the whole thing. He said that he was going to drive down to Zuckerberg's house in a Tesla and sort of turn up on his doorstep and have the fight there and then. I think Zuckerberg's sort of publicist responded to that quite curtly saying that Zuckerberg was away traveling at the moment and he wouldn't just sort of fight anyone who turned up on his doorstep. He took the sport more seriously than that. <laughs> yeah, it does remind me of schoolboys in the playground, you know, saying, we're going to go fight at lunchtime, we're going to go meet by the school gate, but nothing ever really happened. It's just like groups of school teenagers like surrounding each other or circling each other like penguins. Yeah, like Someone might get pushed into the gate, but that's like, the most that's going to happen. It feels like that's common trash talk. And it just, in my head, it's like that scene from um, Bridget Jones where Colin Firth's character and Hugh Grant's character sort of fight and desperately yeah. try not to touch each Queensbury other. Queensbury rules. Yeah, that. exactly. It's interesting, though, that point about trash talking because one of the business school professors that I spoke to was saying that actually people pay a lot of attention to what leaders at the top of organisations are saying and doing. So potentially trash talking your opponent can have a kind of motivating effect over the rank and file employees, albeit it can actually help to motivate your opponent as well to sort of outperform you. So yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, but it would be interesting to sort of gauge what the reaction to all of this is by employees at Meta and X, formerly Twitter. I kind of imagine that they're just finding it as entertaining as the rest of us. Yeah, actually, I wonder if it's all a genius way, as you say, of getting your employees on your side and it kind of creates gangs and sort of tribe mentality. You get people worked up about something and as if there's real meaning in their job to beat the competitor. So yeah, maybe it's a genius power play or a sort of employee engagement tool. But I think it's definitely interesting to watch. And I always loved when I was in my previous role at Campaign, the war of words between Martin Sorrell and Maurice Levy. At one point, Sorrell described Levy as the Freddy Krueger of the advertising industry. And then he also called him an amateur, said his first memory of him was standing at his boss's side being asked to make tea. And Levy returned insults and has called him over the years a little Englishman trying to stir things up and has said he's often acting like a toddler, arguing over who's got the best Halloween costume. It makes for some fantastic copy when you're actually writing about it. But um, I think there was an interesting point in your feature towards the end about how actually somebody who's in your life for a long time, like a rival, you actually kind of define yourself almost against them. So they actually play quite a big part in your identity. And that if one of them suddenly disappears, it's not like an enemy where you'd be actually genuinely happy to see them go. You kind of almost need them to shape your own identity around. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's sort of reinforced of others frequently talking about the two of you together. And we definitely saw this play out in the sort of relationship between Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. So obviously they had this sort of periods of collaboration and then periods of intense rivalry, various sort of insults exchanged. But um, when they both appeared together on stage at the D5 conference in 2007, Jobs actually got quite emotional, if you watch the video, about his relationship with Gates, comparing it to the line in the song, The Two of Us, you and I have memories longer than the road that stretches out ahead. And Microsoft's founder actually returned this tribute in an episode of Desert Island Discs that aired a few years after Jobs died. And he chose that Beatles song as one of his sort of eight tracks so you see there the sort of rivalry really evolve into a sort of form of friendship or at least 
a relationship that they both treasure towards the sort of ends of their career. And in that sort of Levy Sorrel example, I think when the Paris terror attacks happened, Sorrel got in touch with Levy to check he was okay. And then when Sorrel left WPP, which was a big deal at the time, Levy sort of said some nice things about him. So I think rivals can definitely make you better because it keeps you on your toes and kind of keeps you on top of your game. And it can be a kind of motivating factor to keep going. So it's not all bad. You sort of have a begrudging respect for your rival because you're competing within the same industry and you're often both at the top of your game and you're competing against each other, but you have an admiration for the other person on perhaps how well they've done and how well they've succeeded because you're constantly trying to outdo them. So you recognise their strengths and are thinking constantly thinking, of, oh, am I going to one-up this person? Whereas if it's somebody like an enemy that you mentioned in your piece, Antonio, this sort of fairy tale element, you know, mortal enemies that we need to fight out gladiator style, which seems to be what Musk and Zuckerberg seem to be embodying. It seems to be a lot less professional than a simple rivalry. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like you said, it's degenerated slightly into some quite sort of childish um, insults, some of them probably not to be repeated on here, but generally I do think that that begrudging respect, as you put it, is sort of a hallmark of rivalry and one of the business school professors mentioned the fact that everyone's looking for someone to compare themselves to and if you're a CEO then that's not going to tend to be someone within the organization because you have reached like the top level of leadership so you're looking for someone outside of the organization and actually one of the sort of key antecedents of rivalry is similarity so you tend to actually look for someone who is similar to you and that similarity kind of intensifies the rivalry or helps it to sort of take root. Well, how interesting. They always say that you get more irritated by somebody if you've got that quality in yourself and you kind of almost react more badly to it. Yeah, I think it's probably a very similar thing. Mm, fascinating. So and next up is our story, It's Not Me, It's You, which is about new research that shows why organisations should stop trying to fix women and fix their culture instead. This is research from Encompass Equality and law firm Clifford Chance, the pair surveyed 4,000 women about what factors impact their decisions on whether to stay or leave their employer. And overall, the findings highlighted that women's propensity to leave their employer is not determined by personal circumstances such as age, motherhood or menopause, which are often touted as the reasons. In fact, they found that working mothers were slightly more likely to stay at their roles than those without children. Instead, they found the most faces down to organisational factors such as the amount of support they receive from their line manager, organisational culture prospects for career advancement, the day-to-day work itself, and the sheer volume of work that they're given to do. At the launch event, Encompass Equality's strategy director, Edward Haig, used a goldfish bowl analogy to explain how companies approach the problem. He said, what organisations are doing is looking at a goldfish bowl in which the water is really murky. They're taking the goldfish out, i.e. the women, cleaning them up, and then putting them back in the dirty water. Clean the water, not the goldfish, he said. I mean, I I love that image. It's kind of horrible, but um, also very evocative of putting the clean goldfish back in the dirty water. And sort of the reasons you mentioned, those are organisational culture, the sort of workload. Those are all things that would affect men, you would presume, equally. So it's sort of interesting that organisations have honed in on this idea that there's some sort of problem with women that they need to address. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think if you look at the world of work, it's been set up to primarily benefit men. 
the way that the working day is structured, the working week is structured, nine to five uh, working day. Whereas if you look at schools, they're only nine till three, three thirty. So there's always an expectation that there's got to be some parent available to pick the children up. And that's always assumed to be women because throughout history, you only have to look back at our history and, and very recent history even, it's even more alarming to see that it's always assumed that the woman would be the one to be a stay-at-home parent and the father would go out to work. Now, obviously, women have a lot more choice. They had a choice to go out and work. But there's also the affordability. A lot of families can't afford to have one parent stay at home. So it makes more financial sense for both parents to go out and work. Yeah, I think Cindy Gallup always said the working world is predicated on having a housewife. I think that's very true. And I, I think when you talk to most of the chief execs, either there's a partner at home often, or there's a lot of domestic help. And I think that that's not kind of talked about enough often. So people underneath them think they're just having to juggle everything and they're somehow these brilliant multitaskers. But actually, there is a lot of help that's required to do some of these big jobs. It's interesting that often if women bring up issues in the workforce, it is seen as you know, well, what's wrong with you personally? Oh, you must, you have all these conditions, you have like the menopause, you have all these things that, you know, we need to sort of additional support for. And I guess that's the whole kind of equity discussion, isn't it? But actually what this research is saying is at its basic level, they're facing exactly the same motivators and challenges as, as the men are in the workforce as well. And actually those are bigger motivators. So of whether they stay or leave. So I think it's, um, it's definitely something I think organizations should be thinking about. They have the power themselves to make the culture better and they should be fixing it. And for our fun story of the week, what did you spot, Ailish? So I spotted an article on The Times called Should Your Employer Pay Your Lunch? And they had two experts that had quite opposing views, one very firm no and one very firm yes. And very briefly, the, the no answer was from a guy called Paul Britton, who is the founder of the law firm Britain and Time, who was very adamant that there's absolutely no way that he'd ever pay for employees' lunches. The gist of his answer was that if you pay for people's lunches, the long-term effects will be that staff will struggle to make their own decisions because everything's being done for them and they'll be completely incapable of making simple life choices because somebody's paid for lunch for them and he would much rather give an employee a pay rise to let them kind of maintain their own independence and then they could buy their own lunches. I think this is hilarious the idea that you're tantalizing your staff by paying for their lunch that they therefore are going to be completely incapable of ever making a choice again about what food they should eat. Mm. Well the, the yes answer looked at it from a much more humane <laughs> humanitarian viewpoint. So this was from Kirsty Adams, who is a culture partner in the human resources team at the comparison site finder.com. And she basically agrees that employers should pay for free lunches or pay for their lunches because they're doing it to help their employees save money. She understands that we're in a very difficult financial situation at the moment. And she did acknowledge that this 
might seem a little bit tokenistic or surface level, but the impact actually runs a lot deeper. And at the end, she said, you know, free lunches are much more than a free lunch. So apparently, according to her, she says the free lunches have saved employees more than two grand a year. So their salaries can stretch further. So there is that element of, yeah, trying to keep employees happy by helping them financially. Yeah, I think most people would probably prefer a pay rise so they can make their own choice about what lunch they have. But I think in this scenario, you get tax breaks for providing these sort of employee benefits. So it's not quite the same to equate a salary increase with the benefits that you're providing. So it's sort of a false argument that first person is making there, but interesting nonetheless. So um, yes, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Have you learned that again? So that's it for this week. So on to the interview now with Andre Lacroix. If we look at productivity in the UK currently, according to data from the Office for National Statistics, productivity was 0.6% lower in the first quarter of this year compared to quarter one in 2022 which is the weakest annual growth since the first quarter of 2013, of course, not including the pandemic. So what do you make of those figures? My view on global or national productivity numbers is that we have to be extremely careful when uh, we start analysing the data. In a world that is changing at the speed of light, national numbers are averages or averages, you know, between regions, between cities, between sectors. And the trend is, of course, factual based on what you're saying. But I think we need to go beyond the national data and really try to understand what's happening sector by sector, company by company. And the best way to deal with a productivity challenge is to make sure that in every single company, in every single teams, in every single unit, the leader in charge is unleashing the full potential of her or his business. And to me, the productivity challenge that we are talking about is directly linked to what I talk in leadership we saw, where the engagement level inside companies is not high enough. At a global level, you have 20% of the workforce that is engaged, which means 80% is disengaged on a global basis based on Gallup. That means that every day, 2.8 billion employees go to the office interested in what they're going to do, but not truly thrilled and excited about the day ahead. So the macro challenge you're talking about is understandable. The solution is at the local company, department, team leadership level. What are some of those perhaps macro or even microeconomic or social factors that are affecting productivity in the UK? I think if you look at some of the macro challenges first, you know, we all know that the sectors are performing differently every single semester, every single year. And if you look at a longer trend, the UK has been facing some tremendous years of growth, but also tremendous years of structural you know, changes. Brexit has obviously meant that Quite a bit of production has been not happening here, but happening outside of the country, which is increasing, of course, the weight of the, of the service you know, sectors in the UK economy. And all of that is basically driving the mix challenges I was talking about earlier. To me, if I look at what's happening 
inside companies, I believe that companies have to increase their focus on leadership and leadership at the team level, at the unit level. And this is, you know, what I really, really believe in it because companies will only unleash their full potential if they've got highly engaged workforce. And I'm not trying to be negative, but my conclusion is that at large, you know, companies are over, you know, managed and underled, and we need to help the leaders to basically work on their leadership behaviors and skills and styles to unleash the potential of every single team they have under their responsibility. How are those sorts of trends affecting employees within businesses? The major challenge that I see in the corporate world is that companies have to deliver results for multiple stakeholders, right? They've got their customers, they've got the regulators, they've got the shelters, they've got, of course, their suppliers and their employees. And it is my view that, that companies have been very, very focused on one type of stakeholders, you know, shareholders, which is very, very important. And they tend to be very short-term focused. And when you run a company with short-term perspective only, i.e. you refocus on the next quarter only, that drives certain type of behaviors in the business. But that doesn't, in my view, necessarily drive productivity gains over the long term because if you have an entire organization spending a disproportionate amount of their time focusing on short-term performance only, they forget the long-term structural growth drivers, the work that needs to happen in operating systems, in IT, in process re-engineering, and therefore they don't invest enough, if you want, in the future growth and the future productivities. And that's what I mean with the solutions being leadership at the local level, unit level, because when you don't have the right leadership, you have too much focus on the short term, which might drive some short-term gains, but forget all the other things that needs to happen inside an organization, including training, including people development, including you know creativity, including strategic thinking, including investments that should over time build a greater performance for the company and drive productivity. And that's my own view. Mm. How have you seen productivity change over the course of your career? As a leader, taking my responsibilities to make sure that I drive two tracks, or what I call in simple terms internally, I drive the track one, which is you know short-term performance, delivering against the short-term objectives, and track two, which is you know investing in the long-term performance of the business, and you know without track one, there is no track two, but without, you know, track two, you know, track one will also be an issue over time. And that's what I've been trying to do as a leader is making sure that in every business I run, there is a clear vision. This is where we are going. We are precise about the size of the price and the destinations we are traveling to, making sure that everybody understands their own contribution to the vision and to the strategy that we are putting in actions. Of course, measuring the performance with a short, medium, and, and leading indicators, because this is you know, really, really important to understand data where we are. But importantly, motivating, recognizing, energizing, taking people with you, and finally, creating a huge focus on innovation to never stop reinventing yourself so that you can drive productivity gains you know, step by step. Because if you continue to do what you do every single day, 
it's unlikely you're going to drive the maximum productivity gains for your companies because you need to reinvent yourself. How does the UK compare with other countries? In my view, the UK has got lots of strengths, a lot of assets to remain one of the most powerful force in the global economy. It is a country where the education is super strong and that's why you have so many foreigners coming here to the UK to study. There is a culture that is very healthy for growth in any sector. I think in this country, people work very, very hard, very, very open to challenges and to take their company forward. Certainly, people want to grow personally. This is a country that is ideally ideally located when you run a global business because you can work across multiple time zones, working in the morning with Asia and doing the day with Europe and the after, in Africa and the afternoon with the Americas. And certainly this is a country where innovations, creativity plays a major role. And that's why the UK has reinvented itself in a very, very impressive way over the last five or six decades by being a leading force in the service economy and certainly in the banking sector. So the UK has got lots, lots, lot of assets to capitalize on, to continue to be a major force for the future. I'm a big fan of the UK as a country to, to do business from and to do business with. Mm. I was looking at some statistics from the World Population Overview, and they were comparing productivity among countries around the world. And I believe Luxembourg, I think, was the most economically productive, but the UK didn't even make it into the top 10. The right way to look at the productivity of the UK is to look at the productivity by sector. How does the banking sector compare with other banking sectors in Germany or in France or in the US? How does the hospitality industry look like? How does the retail industry look like? How does the transportation industry look like? And each time I've looked at these indicators sector by sector, I've never seen really some structural challenges in the UK productivity numbers. And I know it's difficult to appreciate that at the national or global level, but you do have in the UK a different portfolio in your economy, and that cannot be totally ignored. Since COVID, there has been this huge push for businesses to reform their people policies in line with sort of hybrid working, flexible working, but also fairer wages and better workplace environments. We see a lot of trends with younger generations coming into the workplace and they're very vocal about what they will and will not accept or tolerate from the companies that they're looking to work for and their managers and and leaders. There are trends popping up like quiet quitting, bare minimum Mondays. I wrote a piece recently on this phenomenon of the lazy girl job, which which are jobs that require very little effort to do, but can have a very nice payoff in providing a comfortable salary, slightly easier way of managing your work-life balance. So how do sort of workplace burnout and dissatisfied employees affect overall productivity? If you don't have the right engagement level inside the team, you're not going to maximize your productivity. An engaged workforce is more likely to unleash the true potential of your organization than a disengaged workforce. And Gallup, which is the authorities in engagement measurements across thousands and thousands of companies over the world, has proved with their data science that this is the case. So when you run a company, when you run a team, 
as a leader, this is your responsibilities to understand, okay, this is my business model. Going back to our discussion on the economy, this is my portfolio of activities. This is where my market potential is. This is my market share. This is the growth opportunities. And once you've done that, you need to engage your workforce in working with you on how to basically seize these growth opportunities. And once you've done that, then you need to make sure that you communicate and you energize the team on a daily basis to basically execute your strategy. You need to recognize people on a regular basis to make sure that people understand when they're doing a good job. You need to put what I call leadership with soul in, in action. And frankly speaking, it doesn't matter if people think that the young generation might be different than the previous young generations. Our young generation, when I was young, was different than the previous generations. And, and companies need to adapt and make sure that they know what it takes to energize and motivate and galvanize the people they have in, inside the organization. It's all about applying the right leadership because at the end of the day, when people come to the office and decide to work with a company, they've made a decision to join that company. And it is your responsibility as a company to make sure that you create the right growth opportunities for every single individual joining you. Do you have any examples of business that are really sort of responding to this productivity crisis and really getting the most out of their people? And and then what are some of the things that you do within your organization to really engage your people in order to increase productivity? Of course. I mean, there are plenty of examples where companies have worked very, very hard at tackling this productivity challenge. I mean, if you just, I know that we always complain about traveling and airports. I do quite a bit of travel myself. And when, you know, we start traveling again after COVID-19, there was a huge productivity challenge in airports around the world. And I've been amazed to see the pace at which airport management have basically dealt with this challenge. And I know they have not been recognized by most travelers around the world, but I've seen progress in a relatively short period of time in what was a very, very significant challenge because they had a lot of people leaving the airport facilities. They lost training, they lost skills, and they had to rebuild it you know, very, very, very quickly. Another sector that has demonstrated how to build productivity very quickly. If you look at the entire home delivery market in the hospitality sectors. You know, home delivery was not a market that was ready for COVID. Home delivery was a market that basically, you know, did thrive on COVID with demand exploding and they found a way to basically get productivity. I've seen with certain apps has been phenomenal on how they've used technology to make this possible. I mean, I used to be in the burger industry myself when I was at Burger King and, and we did try to test, you know, home delivery in Berlin in the 90s and it didn't work. So it was, you know, very, very impressive what we do at Intertech. We put people at the heart of our strategic thinking and, and day-to-day action. We spend a lot of time thinking about what we can do to better communicate, making sure that our colleagues are involved in the planning of the activities that we have on the agenda for the next quarter or the next you know, few years. We spend a lot of time training making sure that everybody has got you know their own personal development at their disposal if they want to invest in their own career development we do quite a lot of work on health and safety including mental health we've launched a really really good program called kindness a few years ago and then we spend a lot of time on what we call talent planning understanding what are the individual needs of every single employees so that we can provide them with the right growth opportunities. Because as I said earlier, 
when someone joins a company, this is your duty as a leader, as a company, to make sure that that person finds her or his fantastic growth opportunities in your company for the short, medium and long term. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that a lot of teams are overmanaged and underled. So I was wondering, how can CEOs or business leaders avoid falling into that trap of overmanaging but underleading their teams? Super, super important. One is to make sure that you accept to operate with a lot of direct reports. And I know it's a bit of a black and white statement, but sometimes mean meet leaders says, oh, if you've got six or seven direct reports, it's already too much. My view is that if you are good leaders, you should be able to operate with 12, 15 direct reports, because if you recruit the best, if you empower the best, your role is to orchestrate and to animate, but not to macromanage. And I know it's a bit of a black and white answer, but it makes a difference. The second thing that leaders need to do is they need to look at how they spend their time. And to me, I ask myself, you know, two type of questions every single day, right? Are we doing the right things, you know, short term, medium and long term? And then how do our people feel in the organizations? And making sure that as a leader, you spend time on both the what, the short term delivery and strategic prioritizations of the activities for the future, but also how people feel. Another really, really important aspect of not overmanaging is listening and sensing the pulse of the organization. And to me, when you get into a meeting and you see the energy level of your colleagues and you leave the meeting and energy is higher than when, when, when you entered, then as a leader, you've done, you've done a good job because you've energized your team and, and people feel really energized about the journey ahead. If you look at the, the performance of a global company and if you divide these global companies by country, by factories, if you run factories, by site, if you run multi-sites, there is a perfect correlation between the level of engagement in the unit and the sustainable performance of this unit. So the model is basically correlating the engagement level in the local unit with the performance of this unit and making sure that every single leader in every single unit works with her or his teams and increasing the engagement level. A higher engagement level drive a higher performance. Why is that? It's because individuals, employees are more likely to put discretionary efforts at work every single day. And there is a, a book that's been written by Gurnick Baines that talks quite a bit about what I call, what he calls the meaning of a company. And a highly engaged workforce is a workforce where employees understand the meaning of the company, but importantly, understand how they can contribute to the meaning of this company and are super, super, super galvanized in putting all the discretionary efforts in making the company stronger every single day. So the, the, the model is there. There is no question. What are some of the things that a chief exec or a business leader can do to start off improving their employee engagement? If, they've, if they know that this is something that they need to improve, what are some of the things that they should do first? First of all, having the right antennas out there and understand how do people feel. That's really the number one question. As I said earlier, I operate with two questions. Are we doing the right things? The what and how do people feel? That's really, 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 really the quick questions. And then once you've asked these questions, the next question is why? 
and why are people feeling that way? And then what can you do about it? And that CEO needs to do that with her or his own direct team, but also making sure that that happens in every single team inside the organization. You will be surprised, going back to what I said, that companies are overmanaged and underled. You will be surprised by the number of teams that do not meet on regular business, on regular basis to talk about their regular business. I mean, a lot of teams are managed one-on-one and missing the team meetings, having the discussions on the agenda, on how do we feel, how we can help each other. It is a huge gap and that drives engagement. The other aspects that chief exec needs to take into consideration when considering the engagement level inside the company is the culture. How is the culture manifesting itself inside the company? And my advice is the best way to craft the right culture is to make sure that before you write your strategy, you start with the purpose of your company. What is the meaning of what you're trying to achieve? What is your vision? And what are your values? And spending time really with your colleagues to define the values that are the behaviors that you want to see in your company and then making sure you create this cultural advantage inside of company. Really, 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 really important. And of course, driving engagement is not only about sensing the pulse and talking about the meaning and the culture. It's about concrete steps and making sure that you've got a clear strategy with the right priorities and also having the right investments in the future so that people can see you know, how they can make a difference. And then one of the things that I would also advise to any CEOs is, is making sure that she or he spend a lot of time recognizing appreciation, showing some appreciations and saying thank you to individuals, to teams, and not once a year at the annual meeting for everyone, but on a regular basis to create a culture of positive recognition, which is really, really important because people work hard, work hard and they want to know when they're doing a good job. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Andre. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts.